Amen. You can be seated. What a great day of worship. Uh, I love that song. Uh, Jesus is my living hope because he has finished the work. Uh, there's no other work left for me to be do, uh, to do to earn salvation because he's completed it. Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, the first half of Hebrews chapter 10. And as we do that, we're going to be uh, winding down the second major section of Hebrews. Hebrews is divided up into three major parts, and as we finish this part, we'll finish this real focus on the sufficiency of Christ as our great high priest. And, uh, you know, it's been pretty repetitive. This section, especially uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10, have kind of focused on, on very similar themes, uh, talking about what Jesus has accomplished and what he, how he has fulfilled uh, everything. He has completed the task so that we can receive forgiveness and be born again. And so uh, we bring that to conclusion. And then next week, we're going to begin a new series on seven essentials for revival from the book of Acts. So we will be looking at the first six chapters or so from the book of Acts and looking at seven key things that have to happen in a body of Christ, in a church, for a, a revival to take place, for God to breathe life into that, into that body. And then at some point, we're going to come back either after that, after our revival or in the spring, and we'll complete Hebrews and look at the, uh, the, really the application section of Hebrews. It begins in chapter 10, verse 16, where we'll leave off today. The focus of today's passage uh, is really uh, wrapped up in the title that I gave the message, Religion Isn't Enough. All throughout human history, mankind has sought to do enough to please God. We, we've uh, tried to be good enough. We've tried to offer enough good sacrifices, tried to build nice enough buildings, uh, worship a certain way. Even going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, men tried to build a tower to reach up to God. But when you understand the, the, the majesty of God and the holiness of God and, and, and the infinite nature of our God, the eternal nature of our God, and we realize how small we are, we can never do enough to measure up. In fact, the very truth that we have sinned against God disqualifies us from a relationship with him. And we can't do enough to cover up for our own sin. And, and, and the story of Hebrews chapter 10, in fact, the story of the last few chapters of Hebrews has addressed that issue that man has continually tried to do what we could to measure up to God. Man, we still do it. In the back of our minds somewhere, those who still believe that there is a God uh, feel like if I would just do enough good deeds, if I would be a good enough father, if I would be a good enough husband, if I would do enough good things for other people, then certainly God has to accept me. All of that can be defined in one word, religion. It, it, it's certainly uh, essentially us trying to measure up. And Scripture tells us that no matter how good we are in our own goodness, it'll never be holy. We will never be perfect. We'll never be pure in our own strength. The good news that we see again in Hebrews chapter 10 is what Jesus did on the cross was enough. And what he did as he shed his blood for us was enough to cover all 
of our sins. Now read with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 down through verse 18 is going to be our text for the day. The scripture says, since the law has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any conscience, consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he who was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not desire delight or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man... After offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after these days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. To sum it all up, religion isn't enough, but Jesus is everything. He has completed the task. He has offered a, a, an offering. He's made an offering for our sins that was enough to cover your sin and my sin and Peter's sin and, and Caleb's sin and every sin that was ever committed because Jesus was a perfect, pure sacrifice. His offering was enough. And the writer of Hebrews walks us through that. I want to do that quickly today. We're going to look at it in four sections. My wife is going to love this because I alliterated the message today. That'll help her remember it. Yeah, she, you know, we'll go out to eat today after, after the service, and I'll always ask her, well, how was the sermon? And she'll, she'll always say, well, it was good. But she has to. She's my wife, right? And then I'll say, well, what did I preach? Well, then it gets a little bit stickier, right? I'm sorry, Susan, just had to tease you a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I use that as a gauge of how well I communicate. If she's not listening, if I can't communicate well enough for her to remember it, then I got problems here. 
The first four verses, the writer of Hebrews refers to religion and these religious acts as a shadow of things to come, which reminds us from, from the very beginning that there was something that was real that was going to take place. There was something that was true. There was something that meaningful that was meaningful that was going to make the difference. And, and so the shadow of things to come, he identifies in two ways. The shadow of things to come was the law. The law was a shadow of something that was much more perfect. God was desiring of a perfect relationship with us. He gave us the law as, as something that would help us to understand what sin is. But sin is more than breaking the rules. Sin is disobedience to one who loves us and one we are called to love. The law gives us a picture of, of what sin is. But sin truly is that disobedience to God. Breaking, breaking down that relationship with God. The law has only a shadow of good things to come. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be forever. We weren't meant to live our lives based around rules and regulations. We were intended to walk in a relationship with a holy God as Adam walked in the garden with God before sin came. God desires that kind of relationship with us. The law was a shadow, it gave us an image of our sin. But sin, at the root of it, is a broken relationship with a God who loves us. See, you can make a law against adultery, but ultimately, adultery results when there's a breakdown in the love relationship in a marriage. That's what it, that's really the bottom line. And, and God, that's just a picture of the problem. Adultery is a picture of something that's already broken, something that's going on. And that's really what the law is. The law gives us an image. It gives us a picture of something that's already broken in, a, in our relationship with a holy God. The shadow is the law. The shadow is also this idea of recurring sacrifices. So God provided... Uh, a tool for people to understand, and we've talked a lot about this over the last few weeks, a tool for men and women to understand the, the consequences of our sin. That there, there had to be a sacrifice, there had to be an offering, someone had to pay the penalty for our guilt. And the law, the sacrifices that came under the law were simply a shadow of something that was to come. They were never intended to be the real thing. There was one real thing that God had on his mind from the very beginning. He was going to send his son. And so the, 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 sh the, the law and, and the sacrifices were just a shadow of what really matters. Second, we see a sufficient sacrifice. Verses 5 through 10. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, Who is this he? He here is Jesus. This uh, quote from the Old Testament comes from Psalm chapter 40. And, and it's, a, it's what we refer to as a messianic psalm. It's David as he's writing these words uh, more than a, a, a millennia before Jesus came, writes these words as the words of the Son of God as he prepares to come to this earth. And so in Psalm, psalm 40, the writer of Hebrews looks back and he sees this and, and he understands that this is Jesus saying, you didn't desire sacrifice and offerings, but you prepared a body for me. 
See, ultimately, the, the desire of the Father to appease sin and, and to cleanse hum, humanity of our sin was never, he never intended it to be from the blood of bulls and goats. And so Jesus, as he is preparing to come to earth, the writer of Hebrews says, looks to his father and says, you never desired sacrifice and offerings, but you prepared a body for me. Now, interesting that a thousand, over a thousand years before Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, right outside of Jerusalem, God had already prepared a body that Jesus was going to come in. It was his plan from the beginning that he was going to send his son who was going to be born of a virgin and who was going to walk in human flesh on this earth and he was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. And so God already having that in mind, already having that plan in place, set in motion the series of shadows, the series of, of images that would, that would point to Jesus so that when Jesus came, they would be able to grasp it and they would understand the weight and the gravity of their sin. And then when he died on the cross, that he came as the final, perfect, complete sacrifice for our sins. And so as, as Jesus uh, is preparing to come, the psalmist says, these are the words that are on his mind. You didn't desire sacrifice and burnt offerings. You prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. For he says above, you did not desire del or delight in sacrifice and offerings, but whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. And then he says, see, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' sacrifice, once he died on the cross, his sacrifice was enough. It was once for all. It was sufficient to cover the sins of all mankind. Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Religion was never enough, and religious acts will never be enough. You can give all your money. You, you can uh, attend every service. You can do good deeds in the name of God. You can do neat, good deeds in the name of Jesus Christ. But if all you're doing is good deeds in your own strength, it's never enough. Those are simply empty religious acts. God desires a relationship with his people, and that only comes through his son, Jesus. He is the only way to enter into that relationship. His, he sacrificed once for all, and his sacrifice specifically dealt with the issue of our sin. He died once and for all for our sin. All of the blood of bulls and goats that had been shed over the millennia was not enough to erase our guilt. Otherwise, the writer of Hebrews makes this argument. You wouldn't have to do it over and over and over and over, year after year, week after week, day after day. Jesus, when he died, he died once for all, for our sins. His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. It was enough. Third, he is now the seated Savior. <laughs> and I love this. 
<laughs> I love this picture. The image that we get when you look from verse 11 down through, through verse 14 in particular and into 15 is that once Jesus completed the task, it was finished. Now, we didn't, you don't have to wait until he ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father to get that. When Jesus was on the cross, right before he, he gave up his spirit and he was about to take his last breath, he cried out to the Father, it is finished. Because he had completed what was necessary for your sins and mine to be forgiven. He dealt with our sin on the cross. Look at, at verses 11 and following. Every priest stands day after day. He, this is pretty repetitive. He had said the same thing in another way in verse 1. And, and in fact, you can take those two verses and line the last half of verse 1 up to the first half of verse 11. You see how the writer of Hebrews is repeating himself. It suggests he's trying to make a point. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. You can do good deeds. You can offer the offerings. You can burn the, you can light the candles. You can pray the prayers time after time, day after day, over and over and over. And if you're doing it in your own strength for your purpose of reaching up to God and appeasing God, it is never enough. It'll never fulfill the need of salvation that can only come through a savior who died. You can't light enough incense, you can't bow toward Mecca enough, you can't worship enough wooden idols, you cannot do enough, you can't carve enough cool little statues to appease the one true holy living God. You can't. So a priest stood day after day, time after time, doing things that could never completely erase the penalty of sin, could take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why did Jesus sit down? Because he was finished. He was done. Yesterday, I came home from a, a priest at a little Awana conference and uh, Matthew led worship there for us and, and had a great time and came home and we had the birthday party that we were gonna have at two o'clock for the grandkids and I still had a list of things I needed to get done. So I came home, changed clothes, got out, got the weed eater going, got stuff weed eated, got the mowing done and uh, you know thought I was about finished and then I went out in the front yard and I went, front yard's not mowed. I was hot and tired and my temptation, what I wanted to do was go cool off, take a shower, and then go back and weed. But that's stupid. You don't take your shower until you're finished, right? You don't go sit down and rest until you're done. And so by the time I came in, I came in and I took off my shirt and I held it like this to Susan because it was just soaking wet. And then I was finished. Then I was done. Jesus when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, he suggested that he had completed the task. He finished it. What he did on the cross was enough. We sang about it a little while ago. He is my living hope because he fulfilled everything that was necessary 
for you and I to have a relationship with his heavenly father, for our sins to be forgiven, for our relationship to be restored, for there to be hope for eternal life, for the sins of uh, the, the, the bondage, the bindings of sin to be broken from our lives. When he shed his blood on the cross and rose up out of the grave, it was enough. And so he sat down because he was finished. The priest could never rest because they had to keep bringing sacrifices day after day. They had to keep lighting candles day after day. They had to keep setting bulls and, 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 and lamb meat on fire on the altar day after day, time after time. When Jesus died on the cross and rose up out of the grave, he was finished. His work is completed. There's no more need for sacrifice. There's no more need for religion. There's no more need for going through the motions. The only need that we have for eternal life is to put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus who has accomplished it already. It was done. And then, how long is he going to stay seated? Until it's time to come back. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews is not developing a... uh, uh, eschatology here and end time theology, but but it's almost as though he couldn't help but give us a hint. He sat down talking about Jesus at the right hand of God, and he is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. There's coming a time when when the the kingdom of God is going to be established on this earth, when when Jesus is going to return and he's going to finish the work that he began. You know, right now we're still struggling. I mean, he has finished. We, we're saved right? If you put your faith and trust in Christ, everything necessary for your salvation has been complete, but sometimes it just doesn't feel like it. You're living in a rough world, but there's coming a day when Jesus is going to put an end to all of that. And so he's seated until it's time for his return. And he's going to put all of his enemies as footstools. There's no longer going to be any death There's no longer going to be any sin. There's no longer going to be any heartache. When Jesus returns and brings the the final, his final judgment on this earth and ushers in his final time, there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. All of his enemies are going to be destroyed. They're going to be put at his footstool. Until then, he's finished what he had to do. He died on a cross. He rose again so that you could have eternal life. He's completed that task until it's time for him to come back. Now, I'm looking forward to that time too. I've told y'all the last couple weeks, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, I I hope that I'm preaching a gravesite at that time because I think that's going to be the coolest place to be is standing in the middle of a cemetery when the dead in Christ rise first. Wow. But Jesus, right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father because he's finished his work until it's time for him to return. And then we see in the last few verses that his work that has been completed is the solution for sin. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies about this, for after he says this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. So he's talking about the new covenant under which we live. We spent a lot of time talking about that in Hebrews the last few weeks. The Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He will give us a new heart. It will no longer be a heart of stone. It will no longer be a hard heart. When, when we put our faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life, he changes us on the inside. And as he renews our heart, 
His, his laws, his rules are now written on our heart, so to speak. And, and from the very innermost part of our being, we sense this wooing to a relationship with the holy God to walk with him. And it's no longer about trying to fulfill the obligation of religion. It's about walking in a love relationship with a holy God. That's a journey that I enjoy. That's a whole lot more fun than trying to just check off the checklist and measure up so maybe God will accept me. I already know that God has accepted me. Because that, that is settled. That was settled when, Christ, when Jesus died on the cross. And when I put my faith and trust in him, I'm accepted by God. I'm his. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't have to fight that fight. I don't have to try to do things to please God. I want to please him because of what he's done for me. I, I want him to be happy with me. We, we've got a little thing going in, in my growth group right now, I guess, uh, I like to, Susan usually gets up and get dressed before me, and so I, I like to get up and figure out what she's wearing and match her. You know, it's a silly thing, but she likes that, and she thinks I'm cute, and as long as she thinks I'm cute, we're good, right? So I, I like to get up and match her so we look the same. I came into, came into our growth group this morning, four out of the five couples were matching, I don't know if we're rubbing off on them or what's going on there. But, but, but the reason I do that is not because I feel like I need to do that to earn her love. It's because I love her. I like people knowing that we're together. I don't know if she always does, but I like people knowing that we're connected. She makes me look better, right? Because I love her. Yeah. Amen. I'm in a love relationship with that woman, and, and I want to please her. I want her to smile. I want her to be happy. Well, it's the same with my love relationship with the Lord. It's not because I'm trying to earn salvation. It's not because I'm trying to earn forgiveness of sin. That's all settled. I, I love him, and I want to please him. See, he, he, he's changed my heart. That's what God does is he grants, grants us a renewed heart. And, and, and we have this, this spirit living inside of us that, that guides us now. And it's no longer about trying to measure up and check off the boxes. You know, when I, when I first start, started going to church as, as a youth, I, for some reason, you know, I listened to sermons and I thought that God was, a, was like a school teacher. He had this list of rules and regulations. And what God wanted was for me to do this, 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 and this, and not do this, 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 and this. And as long as I could check off those boxes, I was good with God. And as I, as I came to know him in a relationship, I learned that that's as far from the truth as it can be. He loves me. And he's given me a new heart to love him back. Second, <laughs> he forgets our sin. Now, they, these seem like out of order. I'm, I just stick with the order of scripture, okay? Look at verse 17. He says, I will never again remember their sin. He forgets our sin. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I don't think that God has Alzheimer's or he's gotten too old. And some people would say, well, God knows everything, so how can he forget sin? I don't know. 
But God's word says, not just here, but it said it in Hebrews a couple weeks ago, that he chooses to no longer remember our sin. He forgets our sin. When you come and and you put your trust in him and you confess your sin before God and you ask forgiveness of your sin, he forgets it. What an incredible image. He certainly could remember if he wanted to. He's eternal. What that tells me is he chooses to forget my sin because he loves me. Isn't that an incredible picture? The God who knows everything chooses not to know some things. And what he chooses not to know, what he chooses to forget is my sin when I've asked him for forgiveness. Wow. What an incredible picture that we have from Scripture. So when we stand before a holy God as believers who have put their faith and trust in Christ, we don't answer for our sin because he's already forgotten it. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. His sacrifice once and for all was enough. Now, not only does he forgive our sin, but verse 18 says, and he forgives us of our sin. You would think those are the same thing. And and I guess they're similar. But God doesn't just erase it from his mind. He removes the consequences of our sin as well. See, I guess God could forget our sin, but we could still be under the penalty of sin. But the writer of Hebrews wants to make clear, not only has he removed the penalty of our sin, he has forgotten it. I think you could earnestly preach those in any order. I think you, I, I could stand up here and say, first God forgives and then he forgets. But does it matter? He's done both. Hebrews put it in the other order. God forgets our sin and he, he forgives us. And so ultimately, sin, my sin, has no more bearing upon me. He has forgotten it and he's forgiven me of it. I don't bear the consequences of it, and and the God who loves me has chosen not even to remember it. All of that happens, and it only happens through the appropriation of the blood of God's Son. The blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough. It's not just about bulls and goats. What that reminds us of is your religion isn't enough. As I said, you can't light enough candles you can't dig enough ditches, you can't feed enough homeless, you can't attend church enough. There's, there's no measurement for the number of good deeds that you can do to, to get to a place where God has to forgive you. Because ultimately, you still would pay the penalty for your sin. The hope that you and I have is that before the beginnings of the earth, Before man even sinned, God knew what was going to happen, and he put together a plan. David wrote about it back in the Psalms, hundreds of years before it happened, that he was his son, third person of the Trinity, was going to take on a human body, that he was going to walk among us, that he was going to live a sinless life, and that he was unjustly going to be arrested, accused of crimes, he was going to hang on a cross. He was going to be beaten with a cat of nine tails until he was a bloody pulp. 
He was going to be nailed to a cross. He was going to have a spear thrust through his side. He was going to die on that cross as the one only perfect sacrifice, payment for your sin and my sin. I don't understand why God chose to do it that way. Hebrews makes clear that that's how God worked. Only God in his holiness and in his love and in his majesty understands all the intricacies of what was required that my sins could be forgiven, that I could be restored to a relationship with him. My hope rests in what Jesus finished on the cross. My only part in that is to accept that gift. My only part is to, to trust what God has done and when I sense that wooing of his spirit in my heart, that calling of his spirit to come and receive that gift of eternal life is to accept that gift. There, there's no work that I can do to earn it. All I can do is receive it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God has offered us this gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ and through his shed blood. A completed work, nothing that we can add to it, nothing that we need to add to it. We can just simply receive it. But once we do that, God gives us a new heart and he gives us an eternal home and an eternal hope. It only comes through one place. It only comes through a relationship with Jesus. Acts 4 says, there is no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. It's only through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's our only hope. The only hope of humankind is Jesus. So my, my plea with you is if you don't know for sure that were you to take your last breath on this earth today, that you're covered by his blood, that you're a child of God, please come talk to me or come talk to Kevin. We've got a couple counselors that will be able to sit down with you and spend a little bit more time with you explaining things and, and help you see what God's word says about how, how you come into a relationship with Jesus. But it's really pretty straightforward and simple. You have, to, you have to believe that God's word is true. You have to believe that you have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You have to believe that Jesus died. It's all about belief. You have to believe that Jesus died on a cross, shed his blood for you, and then you have to be willing to confess that to the Lord and receive that gift of eternal life. If you'll do that, what Christ did on the cross is appropriated to you. And you enter into that eternal relationship with him. Religion is never enough. But Jesus is our sufficient Savior. What he did on the cross that one time was all it, all it needed to happen. All that it takes for you to be saved. Would you stand with me? Matthew and the worship team are going to come lead us. And if God is drawing you to him, maybe you've, you, you're that person who you've never put your faith in Christ as your personal Savior. I'm going to plead with you to come. It may simply be that as you hear the gospel proclaimed today, you recognize that you have walked a long way away from Jesus. 
you're no longer walking in a relationship with the Holy God and, and, and you want to deal with that. You want to change that. I'd love to pray with you about that. Or you may be, it may have something heavy on your heart that you just need to come to the altar and pray. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. You don't even have to talk to Kevin or I. You just come to the altar and you can pray. This is your, your chance to respond to God. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you sent your son to make that one perfect sacrifice. And it was enough. Allow your spirit to draw those who desperately need a relationship with you. And allow them to, to draw them to you today. We pray in Jesus' name.